Hi, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Kevin Mackett. Hello, I'm Jonathan Agnew. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Spinks from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashini, and you're listening to Not the Footage. Yeah. Yes, you are indeed listening to another edition of Not the Footy Show, approaching 5.50 very soon, John. Anyway, uh, I'm Ashley Morrison. I'm John Lee. And we've got, as usual, a really special guest lined up for you today. We've got uh, one of our youngest guests, although I do believe when we used to cover the motorsport, we had some of the younger guys came on from that. I think they were under 14. But Molly Baker is a 14-year-old who... Her dad and some friends sat down and were trying to think of a sport that they could take up where she could maybe represent Australia down the track. Well, they found one in curling, and believe it or not, within less than a year, she's representing Australia. Phenomenal story. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Me too. Are you going to start? Why not? Yeah, you get us underway. Okay, well, as you know, John, I've just been at the Asian Games, uh, which I have to say, China, the city of Hangzhou... I thought did a fantastic job. I thought it was a really brilliant event. Really enjoyed it. Yes, there's always things you can criticise and things that don't go right or issues, whatever. But the the thing that grated with me throughout the tournament is we seem to have grown the amount of people now that are turning up to medal ceremonies. (laughs) Now, it used to be that just one person would come out hand the medal over, and then they would give the flowers, which everyone, I mean, the amount of athletes that look to the flowers as if, say, why have you given me flowers? What am I going to do with them? I can't take them home, so I don't know what to do with them. Do I throw them, and then maybe someone else might be a gold medalist down the track, like at a wedding, you know? Anyway, the, the flowers, I do understand the history behind them, but I just think maybe if we're going to evolve, let's just leave the flowers. You know, maybe give them a mascot as a cuddly toy or something. But anyway, but they just seem to be. So what we had at the Asian Games, we were having two people would come out to do the bronze medalists. One would hang the medals around the neck, the other would hand the flowers. Then another two people would come out and do the silver medalists, and then another two people would come out and do the gold medalists. And then we would have the anthems and the flag raising and the thing that really irked me was then all these dignitaries would come out and stand in front of the gold medalists for photos. In front of the gold medalists? Yeah. So they would be on the podium and they would be standing on the ground below them. And you're like, why are you guys there? You have done nothing to deserve this moment. You know, you're an administrator or you're sponsor. a board member, you're a sponsor. Exactly. And I just thought, I was saying, if I was behind them and I was a gold medalist, I'd have done like rabbit ears with my fingers behind one of the dignitaries <laughs> because that's the sort of thing, I, way I feel about it. But to me, it was just kind of wrong. And it just seemed to take away from the moment which is meant to be about the athletes. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing, and this was a bit of a criticism, but some of the events, the medal ceremonies were so long after the event finished. And, you know, I had to stay on air to do the medal ceremony. And now there was one, and I think, I was trying to remember which sport it was, and it was from memory, it was either, I think, well, I did Taekwondo or it was weightlifting. I've got a feeling it might have been Taekwondo. Anyway, the medal ceremony was so long after the event, I could count the amount of people that were left in the arena. <laughs> And there were 32 people for that medal ceremony. When the gold medalists got their medals. Yes. Yeah. 32. 32 people. And it had been packed before that. But we'd also had two medal ceremonies before that. But instead of going back to back, there was a gap of about 10 or 15 minutes between each medal ceremony. 
What? So the medal ceremony, that should be over in 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah, I know. Tell me about it. Oh. Is it something about, do you think that's specifically an Asian thing? Is it, some, is it a cultural thing that they've got to go through this whole process? Or is it, it doesn't matter where you go, this is the way they do it? Look, I, I think you're beginning to see it everywhere. Is, is my take on it. I, w- I think it maybe started as an Asian cultural thing, um, that obviously the dignitaries, the suits, have to get the recognition. Um, I mean, they do here to a degree, but, um, you know, it's it's more about the players. Yeah. You know, they don't let these people linger for a long time. No, and that's the thing. I mean, to, there was one medal ceremony, I'm not going to say which sport, but where one of the vice presidents of that sport, after they've posed for the photos then climbs up onto the gold medal podium to be with the team. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. Someone should have come and said, mate, no, 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 you have to earn that privilege of standing atop the podium. You do not just climb up for a photo with that team. That is wrong. You've just ruined that photo. Yeah, I I just think there needs to be more respect for the athletes and their achievements and the work they've put in to get there. And I don't think anybody should be allowed to just jump in on the act. Well, the arrogance. That's a very arrogant thing to do, to think that you can just stand there with the gold medalist and get your photo taken because you deserve it. I mean, get real. Yeah, I don't know. It's just something, again, where we've seen administrators. I mean, years ago, we used to never know who was the president of a sport, who was the president of a football club. You just, you know, the club just ran. You certainly didn't know who the CEO is. Now, CEOs are commenting on everything, aren't they? I mean, there, there are CEOs who demand of their media managers, and this is a fact, that there's not a press release goes out without a quote with them in it. And there's a sport we know in Australia where a certain member of staff resigned because their CEO had to be in every photograph to do with everything and flew across the country to be in one of those photographs and then went back over east. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Wasted. Exactly. For one day and a photo opportunity? Well, for a, probably for a photo opportunity that you weren't required for. Well, why well that was why photo? this person, it was one of the contributing factors to why they resigned. Because they said they did not need to be there. It showed that they are not there for the sport. They are there for their own ego and for their own advancement. Because the more photos, more uh, pre- press coverage they get... It enhances their possibilities to move on to another sport and get a similar job. Have you ever noticed, though, that there's there's a lot of these high-profile sports administrators that um, pump themselves up and produce nothing? Oh, yeah. Hugely pump themselves up. They're all doing exactly what you described there. But at the end of the day, the sport's certainly not better off and generally worse off than when they started because they dropped the ball because it's all about them. Well, it's interesting you say that. And, I mean, that was one of the things I took away from the Asian Games, talking to people from other sports, was you realise that we have a bad situation in a lot of sports where exactly that is happening. It's not just a handful. We're we're talking, you know, over 10 to 20, I would say, where... The administrators now see themselves as the heroes and not the athletes. And in, as the situation stands today, the number of sports that don't do due diligence on the people that are applying for these positions, they see your name, they go, oh yeah, or someone write, they, 
the amount of bullshit that gets written on people's CVs. And, and it's just not true. Not true at all. And then they get these plum jobs because people haven't checked that well, they're lying. Well, that's why we had as a guest, if you remember, the guy from CV Check, because they were saying exactly that. People are not checking. And when you question some of the sports administrators saying, why did you not check? When I, and I, I, this has happened in an example, and I asked this question, it took me 10 minutes to check that the things that this person, they put on their press release when they appointed this person were not true. It took me 10 minutes to find it by just searching on the Internet. And, and I said, how come you didn't do that? And that person still holding down a job in that sport based on fabrication of what they'd actually done. We've, we've seen another person, it took them an organization, you know, over a year to realize that again, the guy was basically, again, feeding them a lot of, uh, falsities, let's say, on his resume. And he couldn't do the job that he was given. It took them a year to work that out when, again, if you just ask the right questions, you can find out. But it's happening now in commentary, John. I mean, I'm amazed at people who are now saying they've done tournaments that I've been at and I've never even seen them there. And they're claiming they've commentated that tournament. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Because I got a phone call from someone saying, oh, I believe you worked with so-and-so at this. And I went, no, I've covered that tournament for X amount of years. I've never even seen them at the tournament. Yeah, well... So it's, it's, I think it's sadly the... And, and I don't like Trumpisms, but it's fake news, isn't it? Everybody now... The media puts out so much false news and stuff that is unsubstantiated that now people believe, well, n- the media doesn't check, the media's not held accountable, so I can do the same. I think there's a lot of that in there. Oh, and... and it- it's a huge, for want of a better term, boys club. It's now a boys and girls club because it's happening at, but it's not gender specific anymore. No. And, uh, we, we live in a world where people are told to embellish things and, and make it sound, you know, we're, we're, but teaching people to lie. Yeah. And, and I think the scary thing is though what's going to come out down the track, and I do think it's going to come out, is how much stuff these people or some of these people are hiding. So there is a lot of stuff going on in sports that is not very pleasant, yet it's getting brushed under the table. And I'm being told that some of the media are actually being uh, incentivized, let's say, to turn a blind eye. Oh, no doubt. And... (laughs) But then when you've got media that are taking money to help players gain a transfer in sports like football where, you know, they run a story saying John Lee's not happy at Fremantle Coburn. You know, there's been an offer from Melville Hockey Club or whatever. Oh, yeah, the manipulation. And, yeah, and they're doing that and the agent is slipping them something because it gets them out of that and gets them a better contract somewhere else. That, again, it, the media's lost its moral compass. Oh, mate, well, it's not independent anymore. No. The media used to be independent. But it's not because it, they're all tied up in broadcast deals and all sorts of shenanigans. And you'll never get the truth about football or whatever sport from the host broadcaster. They're the last people that are going to tell you the truth. It's, it's, it, you've got to go and find it from the independent media because they've got nothing to lose by printing it. They're already outside the circle. Yep. It's not going to matter. Uh, no. I think go, we fall into that. Yeah. Category, don't we? Just, just as a little, nothing to do with the previous uh, conversation we've just had, Ashley. But uh, is Ricky still at the FIH? <laughs> I believe so. Oh, 
Just wondering. Hi, I'm Seth Coe, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Well, as I said, we have a very special guest on this show. I was really looking forward to catching up with her because there's not many people who take up a sport and in less than 12 months find themselves competing on the international stage. Well, that has happened with our next guest, and she is still only 14 years of age, so has a great future ahead of her if she can continue to enjoy the sport she's playing and also continue her improvement. It's with great pleasure that I welcome Molly Baker to Not The Footy Show. Molly Baker, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Hi. Well, I have to say, you're one of the youngest we've ever had on the show, so that's a start. But uh, yeah, really been looking forward to catching up with you because uh, you've got a very interesting story. Now, you've taken up curling, which you mm-hmm. think in Western Australia is, we're a pretty warm place. Why curling? Yeah, it is. Um, well, my someone from my school actually got me into it and they were looking for people for the Australian team. So that's kind of what got me into it in the first place and I just tried it out and I loved it, yeah. So how come the Australian team were looking for people and you said young people of your age to get involved in a sport like curling? Um, well, not many people know about it, so they're... Um, they just kind of thought we need more people doing this sport and it's a good sport and it involves travelling and it's people all around Australia but mostly older people so not many young people know about it. So they wanted to show the sport out more and get more people involved in it. So once you decided, oh, I'll give this a go, where did you go to try it? Because, again, we don't have that many ice rinks on which you can practice. Yeah, um, we do it out in Coburn with, there's mainly older teams and which have done it around the world and then do it now in Australia. And we do it every Sunday afternoon playing just the WA League. I'm amazed. I did not even know that there was a league for curling here in Western Australia. So how many, how many, is it quite a big league? Are there quite a few people participating? Um, there's oh, there's probably around maybe fifteen teams, and each team has four to five people in it. Right. So I, I mean, I was going to ask initially, where would you get your stone? Because I didn't think there would be many people here. But obviously, if there are people doing it, are you just borrowing yeah. those at the moment? Um. So they have it at the ice rink already, and then when we go there, we set up the ice and we put in the hacks and set it up because before they do ice skating. Uh, and then we just bring out the stones and set it off up all ourselves and play. So what is it about it that straight away you thought, I love this? Well, it wasn't I loved the sport, but it was also because I got to meet lots of other people, which was really good to see because I, like, I didn't know about it at all until I started playing. I didn't even know that it was a sport. I saw it on TV once, but that's all. And then I... It was just so much fun. And because it's not, it's competitive, but it's not too competitive where it's stressful. It's just a bunch of fun. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, so at the moment, I mean, people know you have the sweepers and obviously you're then mm-hmm. pushing the stone up the yeah. ice. I mean, have you learned how to sweep? Because there is a real art in that. It's not a case of just going out there with a broom, is it? Yeah, so I did two, I did three sessions before I actually started playing games where they taught me how to sweep, how to release the stone and kind of how to read the ice to know where you want the stone to go. Um, and then from there, they just chucked us in and got us to play a bunch of games, which I think helped the most because then you actually got to learn from experience instead of just from a teacher. So I, yeah. So, I mean, is there a real art to actually sweeping, uh, playing the stone and sliding it down the ice? Yeah, so it's more sliding the rock, the stone down the ice, which is more the thing. And then the sweep is you just got to, the, um, the, where is it? The skip who is at the end of the ice, they tell you, um, when the sweep is sweep. And also you should kind of realize as well, um, if you want it to go faster or if you want it to kind of change the direction of the stone. So you just kind of, you kind of like learn as you go. And yeah. So it's a case, I presume, of as you're learning the sport, you're getting more of a feel for it. So then you're mm-hmm. getting more control, just like a lot yeah. of things, and your confidence is building. Yes, 100%. I mean, how fast yeah. has your progress been? Because I believe you only started, was it the end of last year or the beginning of this year? Um, It was the beginning of this year. And since then, I have been to New Zealand for it which was crazy. I went in June and I thought, what am I doing here? But it was so much fun. And then I got to meet people from all around Australia as well, which were doing it like in New South Wales and things like that. And then at the end of this year, in December, I am going to Finland um, to represent Australia, which I'm very nervous about. But I, you just kind of learn as you go along. And also because I've met lots of different people who do it as well, and they have kind of given us tips. I met two people who have gone to the Olympics for it, which is crazy. So you just kind of get tips along the way. It's not bad. Like you take up a sport and you're representing mm-hmm. Australia within a year. I mean, so yeah. you must have really shown some talent. Yeah. Well, not – it was – the case of you have to learn how to do it and everything, and more people have come along and done the sport since I started. But because no, like, I think there's a boys' team from New South Wales who do it, um, which are five people, um, and then there's the girls' team, which is three people from WA and then one person from Melbourne who do it as well. So... I just learned it, and then they were like, well, you're actually good at this. Why don't we actually get you on the team? So was the trip to New Zealand representing Australia as well, or was that a a sort of Oceania-type competition? Yeah, the trip to New Zealand was just with Australia, but we all went to New Zealand, and then the teams, it was mainly for the older teams to see who would represent Australia in, like, the, the other countries. But because we are the only, um, we are the only like young team who do it as girls. We versed all of the adults, which was very hard. But we learnt so much because they all knew that it didn't really mind playing us, so they just gave us tips along the way, and 
told us we were doing a good job. Fantastic. So, I mean, you took up the sport because I believe, you know, was it some dads wanted to come up with a sport that you guys yeah. would be able to represent Australia? <laughs> yeah. So when um my friend Holly, she her dad turned 40 um, and him and his friend were, um they were thinking, we let's think of the sport that no one in WA does or in Australia does that can get either us or our children to represent it somewhere around the world. Um, so, and they were like, oh, what sport should we do? And then they thought of curling and they realised that no one does it in WA. So they founded um, WA Curling and they started it up at Coburn and... Then they got people and they found out that lots of people, a few people knew how to do it, but they just had nowhere to actually kill. So everyone made up their teams. And then since then, they've gotten more people along doing it and they've actually made a league out of it in WA. That's fantastic. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really an amazing story. And I mean, I'm, I'm thinking now, so the goal was that you might represent Australia. You've done this, or it looks like you're about to do it very, very quickly. I mean, do you now have bigger ambitions that you're now thinking, you know what, the Olympics could be a really realistic proposition? Mm -hmm. Well, when we were in New Zealand, there's so many people talking about, oh, um, the like youth Olympics, and they were all talking about all of these opportunities, and it was so overwhelming because it was like I started because since I did it in June, so I had only been doing it for like five months. I was like, I started this five months ago, and now they're talking about the Olympics and having – because Australia government pays for some of the flights, and so that's really good, which really <laughs> let Dad me do it. Um, and – you it just it was crazy because all of these opportunities just arose from the sport that I hardly knew how to play at the beginning of this year I know it's I was going to ask you about funding because obviously if you are now getting these opportunities how are you going to afford to fulfill them because flying around the world is not cheap I mean is that something you're going to have to look at down the track and see if you can get a few sponsors yeah so we I got from um the area that I live in, Curtin, they gave me some money um, to actually go for, like, flights and things. And then the Australian sport also gave us, so the flights are free to go over there and back. So that was really good. And then we got some money from Curtin to do, um, to do, to pay for accommodation and then the rest we pay for, which is very good. Um, so I'll be in Finland for, I think, like two weeks. And then I think for me, I'm flying to Sweden after to see my, some family that I have over there as well. Fantastic. Now, what's been the reaction at school? Because, you know, you're still at school and people suddenly go, hang on a sec. Molly's yeah. representing Australia and she's going to Finland. What's the reaction been there? Yeah. So last year, because Holly, who also does it, um, she did it last year. And I remember when she was saying, because she went, uh, she went to Norway, I think, last year for it, um, which was just another little league. Uh, and I remember her telling us all about it and trying to like show us how to sweep and everyone was so confused. And then I started doing it and everyone's like, well, people are actually doing this. So since then, people have really learned about curling and also we have managed to get 
three other people from my school doing it as well because we told them all about it and the opportunities that you get and also how because it's pretty easy to commit because on a Sunday night like you're not really doing much anyway so just kind of go and I'm just thinking there's huge marketing opportunities with Molly and Holly. I mean, you, you know, it's, yeah. it's almost like there's yeah. a movie in it as well. <laughs> yes, definitely. Well, look, Molly, it's been fantastic catching up with you. I'm so happy for you and uh, great opportunity. We'll be following with interest your progress over the next few years. I yeah. mean, do you, have you looked at an Olympic Games and thought, you know, it'd be great to get to those Winter Olympics or are you? is that too far ahead at the moment? Um, I have no idea because they have mentioned it quite a bit now and but it's always been just a thought like but to be honest half of this have just been a thought and we've managed to do it but um, yeah half of it have just been a thought but they the parents all seem very keen on it so I'm sure that they'll somehow find their ways for us to go further in curling. Well I wish you all the very best and as I say we'll be following your progress with great yes. Thanks so much for your time. All good, anytime. Hi, I'm Mark Leduca, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Well, that was Molly Baker, who I hope you found that as interesting as I did. I think it's a fantastic achievement to have just taken up curling, especially in a city like Perth, which would be the last place you would ever think that a winter sport would be taken up. But fantastic achievement. Really wish her well in Finland. As I said at the end, John, I'm going to be following her with great interest. You know, there'll be some knobs out there that will go... Oh, yeah, but no one plays curling. It's not very... No wonder they got into that. But, hey, so what? She's obviously done well enough to be invited to compete for Australia in Finland, and let's see how she goes. I mean, I'm sure she's not expecting to win it, but if she places, you know, out of the bottom five, that's a great achievement for someone so young who's only just started it. You know, it's you've got to start somewhere. Someone has to be at the bottom of the ladder in an international tournament at the very beginning. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Where she comes is irrelevant at 14. Yeah, the fact that she's, yeah, the fact that she's representing Australia, that's the thing I think is fantastic. I'll be honest, I would have chosen, I would have represented any country that wanted me in any sport just to say I was an international. (laughs) True, there is that. But nobody wanted me and I wasn't good enough. Yeah. Well, that's how a lot of these sports survive, isn't it? On, on, this idea that uh, you'll be a superstar by representing your country. Uh, we and, know that's not true anymore. Yeah, it's not true. Speaking of which, Olympics. Yep. Are you going to go on that one? I don't know. Well, I've seen the list. I can't remember what all the sports that they've introduced. Just before we do, can I just give a congratulations yeah. out to a former guest we've had on the show many times, Ben Wright, para yeah. weightlifter. Uh, it was fourth in the Commonwealth Games. He's now been upgraded to a third place in a bronze medal. And we follow Ben's story when he really started doing powerlifting. And so I just cannot think of a more deserving guy to get a medal. And hopefully, who knows, he might even get one at the Olympics. But congratulations, Ben. Really proud of you. Um, we got the World Cup on at the moment, Cricket World Cup. Is, is, has the centralised system had its day in this country? I've been saying for a long time, I think it's time we canned it full stop. It's become an exclusive club. It has. 
And um, see, the, the centralised system came around to provide those players with an income, right? Because the sport didn't have regu- good enough income streams for them to put in the effort that they needed to, to blah, 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 blah. And it was also to take the stress off state the states states, yeah. or counties in cricket, as yeah. an example, so that they weren't losing money having their superstars yeah. away um, because, obviously, they were paying the wages and then they got topped up with their test match fees. Yeah. So it was that as well. But it had good purpose behind it. It did then. But the... Landscapes change. Absolutely, the landscapes change with the plethora of T20 tournaments, with the way that the, the cricket economy is now moving. We don't need a centralised system anymore. Not centralised contracted players. And we've we got this situation where a player is injured, can't go to the tournament, is flying in halfway through the tournament, hasn't played any cricket, and he's going to get dropped straight into the team. Yeah, I don't agree with that in any sport. And now, they're all centralised players, contracted players. And those, I think it also takes away from the selectors' ability to do their job. Because there's a, an inference that they will select centralised players. And form is temporary, mate. It doesn't matter what your contract says. Form is temporary. And... I think that we're dutting ourselves out of, A, picking the best players, and, and also we're doing a disservice to all those players outside of that top echelon. Cricketers can go and make really good money now without having to be in a, a, an Australian player. We don't need the centralised contract system. Match payments, sure. If you get selected, we're going to give you a good slab of money for... Yep. representing your country per test, per one day or whatever. But this centralised contract system is a joke now. It, I, it's, it's irrelevant. But I agree 100% with you because I think the thing that what you're seeing as well, people keep moaning, nobody's going to watch Sheffield Shield cricket anymore. Well, part of the reason is because when there's not an international game anymore, those players don't even play for their states anymore. In, no. in English county cricket, you had, I think, Chris Wokes had not played for his county for something like two years. And then some of them have only played two games, you know, when a county season is a lot of games, and they're just not playing because they want them to be rested for international duty. Well, it's well, like, I, I might, this is by all means, limit the amount of games they play, but... Come on, you need them to play at that level to encourage the next generation. Because I can tell you, there is nothing greater when you're an up-and-coming player when you play with someone who's played at the top and you're rubbing shoulders and you're sharing a dressing with the room with them. That is a special moment because you're like, oh, my word. Like, I can't believe I'm here playing with this guy who played test cricket or played candy cricket or played state cricket. You, it lifts you. And that's a great thing. And what we're seeing is we're missing that now because those guys are never coming back down to that level. And you're also seeing, I think, not so much, but to some degree, the state cricketers aren't playing as much in the pennant cricket that they used to as well. So the whole system that was so successful is now actually falling apart because of what's happening at the top. And a lot of that's driven by the amount of international cricket that's being played. Now we're going to have more with the Olympics. Yeah, far too much international cricket. Yep. Just insane, stupid amounts of, especially with the T20s. I mean, we do not need endless, meaningless T20 competitions. 
Well, it's like I was MC, as you know, at the Spirit of Rugby Long Lunch. Brad Hogg was one of the speakers, and he stood on the stage there and said, there's too much cricket now, because you can't follow it. People are losing interest. I mean, you used to know who was playing whom whenever during the next couple of calendar years. But, of course, now we've got Australia, India, and England have monopolised international cricket. I mean, I actually saw, you know, Australia and India were playing the other day in in a warm-up game, I think, for the World Cup, and I was like, oh, not again. It's so boring. You guys just play each other all the time. And I was telling someone about how the last time New Zealand, we only had a test match, didn't we, recently, between New Zealand, Australia and New Zealand. They hadn't played for something like seven years in a test match. And you just go, that is crazy when they're literally just across the ditch. Well, they are. I mean, gone are the days where the, the Australian cricket summer was six tests or five tests and a handful of one day is in January. Yep. The, the old, the good old-fashioned tri-series. They, they can't do Love that. Love that. Yeah, it was a good idea. And it got great crowds. It pulled big crowds. Um, these days, they're all over the shop. I mean, they start in October, test cricket in October sometimes. The, the way the whole um, domestic season works, where we all have to shut it down so we can have the big bash league. Um, yeah. It, it, it's just so unstructured. There's, there's nothing you can hold your hat on, hang your hat on, and go, oh, well, we're, we're doing this is this time of year and this is going to happen. If you were going to do away with the centralised system, how would you just use the money that is at the top and distribute that to the club, the states, and say, well, okay, we've got this pot at the top now, which we're still going to pay the players, but we will give you a little bit more for development? Because to me, that's what should be happening. Oh, it's something along those lines. Yeah. Not most definitely. But the problem is because there's so much international cricket, you, you won't get those players back there anyway. They'll be, they'll be either held out because the, the poor petals can't play too much. I mean, honestly, that is the biggest load I've heard in a long time. Christ, Dennis Lilly, one of the, the greatest fast bowler ever, would, would play every day of his life if he could have. They, they would turn up. I used to go and watch him playing club cricket. They would play their club cricket. They would play their shield cricket. And because the, the way that the fixtures were, uh, the, the calendar was structured allowed them to do that. They can't do that anymore, even if they wanted to. Well, even young players now, they're only restricted how many overs they can bowl in a week. Which is just, is that not... Whereas, you know, most people will tell you years ago, players didn't break down as much because they played more. And they got the muscle memory, they got the strength from bowling in the nets, playing in games. That's how it worked. And I'm, Stuart Clark is one of the few that stands out. I think Damien Fleming, again, is another one that agrees with that and says the system we're using. No wonder they break down. Yeah, exactly. There's no resilience built into them. Yeah. At all. And you know what? The, they go up. It starts from a young age, this. And, and these guys are breaking down at a very young age. And I think that for all, especially fast bowlers, you are going to have issues as a youngster because it's quite an unnatural movement, right? That, that doesn't get better by saying, oh, you've injured yourself, don't play for six months. Yep. Uh, and, and then come back and then throw them. It, it, you've, it takes a long time to build a body that can bowl at test cricket level for extended periods of time. And it means bowling and bowling, and bowling. It's not, oh, well, you've, you've, you've had 28 deliveries. Um, sit down, go and do some weights. 
Well, I, I looked up John recently, funnily enough. Somebody sent me something, and they went, I can't believe you bowled this many overs. It was in a school season. School, right, in England. So the season ran end of April to the second week of July, and I forget how many games. I think we played about 20 games, but I bowled 310 overs. And they were going, you'd never be allowed to do that today. And I, the only thing I suffered was shin splints because, you know, Which just are, run, running in and doing the same thing again and again. Yeah, that was, and you can get that just growing up. Shin splints don't necessarily yeah. just happen because you're playing cricket or you're running a lot. They, yeah. they can happen because they're going to naturally happen to you when you, as you grow up. Through your teenage years, I'm sure everybody had shin splints as a teenager at some stage. Yeah, it's it's sad, but uh, I mean the the thing that gets me, and I think we've mentioned this before, was when Justin Langer was coach. You know that there was a player asked for some time off, and Justin Langer said to him as coach, maybe one of the reasons why the players didn't like him, but he, he said, well, we give you nine weeks or twelve weeks, I forget how much it is at the beginning of the year, and the guy goes, yeah, but I'm playing IPL. He goes, but that's your choice. We've given you that time off. If you can't, we're your employer. Yeah, if you. C- Choose to do that on your holiday. That is your choice. But you're not getting any other holiday. Or if you do, you're going to have to leave the squad. And I mean, I think he was 100% right. Yeah. Oh, well, see, that's the thing about the centralised system. If, if they held people to account under what the centralised system should mean, that wouldn't be an issue. But they don't. They bend over backwards because they're scared of player power. So, and managers probably. And lawsuits. Don't get me started on Australian cricket holding people to account. <laughs> well, you know, if if you're signed to a centralised contract, mate, you're not going there. You're not going to India to play IPL. You're in Australia working for us playing Sheffield Shield cricket. Because we pay you. If, if you don't want us to pay you, if you want to go over there and let them pay you, fine. We'll terminate your contract now. And you could go and do that. But you won't be playing for Australia, okay? But that's where, in a way, you have to show respect for Chris Gale because he went, okay, I'm not available for that anymore because I'm going to chase the dollar playing T20. And that's fine. You want to yeah. do that. He made that decision, and I respect him because he, he came out, he didn't hold anything back and said, I'm no longer available, I'm going to do this. And, and it's his are, choice. There are certainly players now who are saying, oh, I'm not interested in that anymore, I'm just going to go and chase the money. Fine. Yeah. I mean, Chris Gale seems to be the exception because he could have walked into just about any test team. Yeah. He's a very talented player. Um, but see, the thing about the West Indies is they're so dysfunctional. No wonder he walked away from it. Yeah, that's another, another thing. <laughs> that's just, yeah, you know, it makes it easy when that's happening. But, I mean, say if Dave Warner had been told. I mean, Dave Warner's one of the guys that has stayed away a bit from the IPL, a little bit. And Steve Smith, Stark did it. But how did they stay away because it was the right thing to do? Or did they stay away because they were told that they should be staying away? I think their bodies told them. Well, that's the other side of it. I genuinely think that they were smart enough to realise that something was going to give. By not playing, they would prolong their careers by taking that break. The other thing about the amount of cricket that does get played internationally now, and I think a player like Adam Zamper is a classic example He's been worked out. They've worked him out. Yeah, but that's the and, other thing. And it's th- no longer, you're no longer getting surprises. You're no longer having people come out and 
Where did this guy come from? But that's everybody exact, knows where yeah, they come but from. But that's exactly the point you're making. Because you have those centralized contacts, you're playing the same players who are offering the same thing. And that's yeah. why you need to say, no, you're going to take a break. We're going to bring in so-and-so because he offers something that no one knows about at the and, moment. And the signs were there last year that Zampa was cooked. But I think fans want to see that. Well, I do. I know that. In some ways, it, it, it doesn't matter who they pick. Yeah. You know, it, 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 if it's the best player, they're the best player. But because now the best or players the aren't... the inform player, as you said inform, at the beginning. Inform is that, yeah. Because form is the only only real true measure. Yeah. Isn't it? Of, Should a, of be. an athlete. Are they inform? Are they not inform when it comes to... Yeah. Uh, how much of a risk do you take on going... Well, this guy has been good previously, but he's five years older. Oh, he's still a great player. Well, no, he's a good player now. He was a great player. <laughs> now they're a good player. Father time catches everybody. Sure does. And it catches us now because I think we better go. Oh, yeah. See ya. We'll be back next week.